welcome to the Driving to Better Business podcast, celebrating women working in transport, fleet management and road safety. Now, the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport was first established in 1919. Their vision is a transport, logistics, operations and supply chain profession, recognised and celebrated for its quality, expertise and value. And I'm delighted to welcome their chief executive, Sharon Kindlesides. Sharon, welcome to the Driving for Better Business podcast. Can you tell me more about the purpose of the Institute? Yeah, hello, Anne-Marie, and thanks for inviting me. Um, I think our view of the Institute is we're the home of the profession. So people that are working in the, in the industry of transport and logistics and supply chain at any level have got somewhere where they can come to be part of a community. Um, we are a chartered body, so if people wish to go that way, we can support them through their career development. But we also offer training uh, both for individuals and for organisations and advice. And we like to think that we anyone can come to us and ask us any question and we'll give them good advice, neutral advice based on the facts. And we have an amazing learning centre. So if anyone's doing any research, they're more than welcome to pop along to see that too. Fantastic. How big, how big is the Institute? How many members do you have? Um, we've got roughly 13,000 members in the UK and we've got about 170 corporate members where we, we work closely with them, but we're mainly here for the individuals mm. and they range really from people just at the, the start of their career right up to our fellows who've been doing great service. And I wrote a letter last week to somebody who's been a member for over 50 years. So we've got some quite long stayers here too. Wow, so there's a real depth and breadth to the membership then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just so valuable, um, particularly for our younger members. If they've ever got a question, there's bound to be somebody in the organisation you know, who's seen it before or can offer advice. Um, and I think that's what's really good when we go to places like conference. All the generations can talk to each other and learn from each other. Yeah, that's brilliant. So your appointment as CEO is actually quite recent, um, but you've had over 19 years leadership experience in the sector. So what do you see now as the priorities for the sector? Um, yeah, as you said, I've been, I have been in the industry some time now. Um, I took over the, the reins of this job um, roughly three months ago. Um, and I think it's quite a key time for the profession. I've certainly noticed it's pretty much every morning there's a news article that's something to do with supply chain or transport or driving or the fuel crisis, various things along those lines. So at the moment, we've really got a stage to talk about ourselves. And the key priority for me is making people more aware of the profession. Approximately 4% of all UK jobs are in logistics. And we've got young people who've recently had exam results coming through and might not know what they want to do with their careers. And really my priority is to say, look, this amazing, vibrant, passionate industry is here. We have jobs in all manner of things you've maybe, maybe never heard of. Come and find out more about what we do. So I want to make the profession, the sector attractive and appealing so that when somebody's thinking about, oh, what could I do? They don't sort of turn their, their nose up and think, oh, no, I don't want to do that. They think, wow, that's truly amazing. I can go and be part of something massive. And, you know, without our industry and, and things being transported, there would be nothing in the shops. We would, you know, pretty much be sitting here naked. So it's so intrinsic to everything we do in the country so I just want people to be aware and as excited about it as I am really. Yeah that's really interesting and we don't realise just how much of our daily life involves someone working in transport and the logistics sector 
um, it, there's greater need now more than ever to grow this sector. So how is Generation Logistics supporting and encouraging people into the sector? We're doing a number of things, both um, in our own right. We offer a mentoring scheme. Um, we've actually got a couple of uh, organisations we support, Novus and Aspire, who encourage people right at the start of their career who might not be able to pay their own way through a qualification um, to actually either go to university or to take up a more practical course. So we're, we're really trying to get in at the start of these things. We've got um, an organisation called Think Logistics that helps support schools. So really we're trying to make people aware of the whole industry and the scope. And then when they become a student or when they're an apprentice, we offer them training, we offer them professional development. We just offer them a place they can come and find out more and choose their own career path and know we're gonna support them all the way through. And we offer mentoring. So if somebody comes to us and would like to mentor or be a mentoree, we try to link them up so they've got that support all the way through their career. That sounds excellent. Um it's, it's a good thing to support young people. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm not young anymore because I'm not sure which way I would have gone to get a job. But this sounds a brilliant scheme um, to encourage more people um, into, into the sector itself. And you mentioned technology. Um, and it's, that's been advancing considerably um, in the past few years um, and significant developments uh, in autonomous vehicles. So what are the challenges really with autonomous vehicles and how far are we away from having something that really is truly fully autonomous? I mean, there are fully autonomous vehicles in trials all around the world. Um, the technology itself is very well developed. And I think one of the, the, the views I have of it, it's a bit like a fashion show. Uh, people go to Paris and see the most amazing outfits and then possibly a colour or a design or a belt buckle makes it into, you know, everyday wear at the supermarket or the, the normal high street store. The same with autonomous vehicles. Um, every new version of a car that comes out has learned something from autonomous vehicles, from uh, headlights that dip themselves and raise themselves, from sensors that tell you if you're about to leave the lane. So I think we're seeing cars get a lot more intelligent there's certainly a number of applications where I think they'll be really beneficial. Um, somebody once said the first time you get into an autonomous vehicle, it's not going to be five o'clock going around the M25. Mm. It's going to be in a constrained environment somewhere. And I think what's going to be really valuable is things like out of hours and remote public transport. For example, to I've seen some case studies to help shift workers get to and from work. If you're finishing at 10 o'clock, maybe there's an autonomous vehicle that takes you to an out-of-town car park where you've been able to park your car to avoid congestion. Maybe it's around a hospital or a university campus. So I think the first place we'll see autonomous vehicles really in anger, as it were, or in, in you know, full-blown running around and being useful is going to be in these limited environments. I think we'll also see it in aspects such as um, agriculture and even maritime, where you've got, again, this constrained environment. There's nothing to stop, say, a completely autonomous combine harvester harvesting a field or in a shunting yard of, of a hauliers. Um, if you're just moving trailer units from A to B to C, that could be fully autonomous. It's going to be a long time till we see them in the city centre. 
But I think, you know, the, the benefits they can bring is really this flow down of technology, particularly the safety features into normal cars. So that the cars that are on the normal road at the moment are have got this these safety features built in. And that's always been one of the, the key selling points of autonomous vehicles is that a number of accidents are due to human error. If you can reduce the human interaction, then you can also reduce the number of accidents. So um, I think it'll be slow progress, uh, but there'll be certainly applications where we'll see fully autonomous vehicles a lot more quickly than in other areas. Thanks, Sharon. That's actually really useful. You've mentioned quite a few things there that I, that I hadn't considered, um, especially the maritime and, and the agriculture um, perspective. So, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm seeing huge applications for that in my head now. That's a really fascinating discussion. And moving on from autonomous vehicles, there's also a lot of discussion about intelligent transport systems at the moment. Can you explain what is meant by that? But what are the benefits for road users and companies? Um, I've always thought it was a, sli a slightly bad choice of words because it suggests there are non-intelligent transport systems as well, <laughs> um, which, which we, we don't mean at all. But for me, it's applying data and the use of data and the use of technology to the normal transport systems that we use day in, day out. Probably the most basic application that nobody really thinks about is uh, where you've got traffic lights that change, where you've got a vehicle waiting and, and you've got a vehicle queue. So it's very high level. That is an intelligent transport system. It's using a sensor. It's taking information. It's changing the traffic lights. And as technology progresses and we get a lot more data from AMPR cameras to number plate cameras, from people just having mobile phones in their car. Everyone's heard of Google Maps, Waze here. We're getting such a vast amount of data. The intelligent transport, transport systems can take that data and use it, either to analyze what use is being made of our roads. And we certainly saw that during the, the first lockdown in the pandemic, we were almost getting daily updates of traffic figures and they, they were coming from these data sources. But it also gives planners the opportunity to react in real time. If congestion starts building up on route A, then they can possibly divert vehicles onto route B. So at the highest level, it just gives us a better way of managing the road network. You can set targets so you could maybe manage the road network to reduce congestion, to improve journey times, to improve air quality. There's a whole raft of things you can use it for. And you can also make sure that particularly enforcement can be cleverer. Mm. Um, so for example, there have been systems around schools and in 20 mile an hour zones where the speed limits or the school limits are only there during school hours. So by using an intelligent transport system connected to the cameras and, and effectively a clock, you can make sure that if somebody is penalised, they were only penalised because they actually did break the rule at, say, three o'clock in the afternoon at school picking up time. So you can be very clever and selective. And I think that makes these enforcement measures a lot more palatable to drivers because you know it was actually a fair cop you were caught doing something you shouldn't have been doing and it wasn't two o'clock in the morning when the school wasn't there so I think there's a lot of applications um, and we've all seen journey time systems on the motorway that tell us how long it is to the next junction and that mm. sort of information helps there's nothing worse than being in a traffic jam not knowing how long it's going to take you to get home so I think that reduces some of the stress of driving. Um, 
there are downsides. Older vehicles may not have all of the technology. Um, there's a number of solutions that can tell you how fast to drive to get to the next traffic light on green and things like that. So perhaps older vehicles won't have that. Um, we don't want to distract drivers. Um, you know, the console of some cars now looks like the space shuttle. You're getting so many alerts and warnings. You really don't want to distract the drivers. So some of it is we don't want to de-skill the driver. We still want them to be driving the vehicle and paying attention. So there's, there's got to be a balance there between um, how you use the technology um, and I, I noticed myself, I've got um, lane keeping assist on my car, but I live relatively rurally and we have lots of marks on the road that are white lines. And sometimes my car does try to persuade me to drive along something that isn't a white line. So we have to be a bit careful about the application and make sure that when new drivers are starting to learn and then get technology like this in the car, you know, that they're, they're prepared for how it's going to change their driving style and what they have to do to drive with these more intelligent vehicles. Thanks, Sharon. I think that's a really important consideration that when technology advances, especially in vehicles, that actually we bear in mind that sometimes there's a trade-off and what we shouldn't trade off is safety. Safety must be paramount. Um, we can have as many technology advances as we like, but if safety is worse, then we've got a problem. So by collaboration, I think there's lots of opportunities to collaborate um, across sectors with vehicle manufacturers, road users, highway authorities, um, there's a really good future um, for improving travel and how we travel um, and the, the less stress in traveling on our roads. So thank you for that really, really good um, insights um, into intelligent transport systems. Um, now, when I was back in school, which was a very long time ago, I took motor mechanics and, and wood and metal work um, and technical drawing as well, which I wasn't very good at. But... I did it instead of sewing and cooking, and it did raise a few eyebrows because generally girls didn't take those sort of subjects. Um, transport and logistics has been quite male dominated in the past, but there are many more women now in the sector. How is the CILT supporting them? Well, I've actually got a similar story. When I, when I um, was choosing my A-levels, uh, a friend and I decided that we were both going to be engineers and we both decided to ask our school very kindly could we please do technical drawing um and I, I believe we may be roughly the same age i.e yeah, you know yeah, levels yeah. and my school was very very kind and very progressive and very modern and said yes of course you can um so they were deeply supportive of me and i think without that support and for my family at that point in time there was absolutely no way i'd have gone into engineering um and i think having had that and by the time you've gone through university, nobody's told you can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we've got today now is, is as I said previously, we've got to make the, the industry seem attractive and really make people aware of the opportunities. And I think a lot of transport related jobs are not necessarily a strict nine to five. So they do fit in well around other responsibilities. You know, it's not just women that have caring responsibilities. Anyone can have caring responsibilities. So I think the industry itself is really well geared up to that sort of flexible work environment. But again, we're not very good at talking about it. Um, as I mentioned previously, we have the, the CILT mentoring program but we also have um, a Women in Logistics uh, forum, which is an amazing forum where, where women and gentlemen and um, non-binary people can come together to talk about transport issues. 
um, you know, in a, in a safe environment, but with, with, you know, that always thinking about what's in it for women, but also promoting our, our younger ladies as they come through and giving them a good platform where they can learn to speak, you know, in a professional environment where it's friendly and supportive. Um, and we've actually got our annual conference on the 13th of October that I would encourage anybody to come along and attend. Um, and I'm really keen, you know, if if you have a younger colleague who might like to come, bring them along. Or if you know a younger person who would like to come, get in touch with us so we can be welcoming when they get there so they're not walking into a room with strangers. Because that, that's intimidating, however old you are. And I think sometimes it's just nice to have somebody looking out for you um you know and being aware of you um and at our annual conference that was held um earlier this year we we took um a younger member of the organization a lady called rebecca hicks and we invited her to chair the entire conference and we supported her through that but it was just to to really make people aware that we've got this younger generation coming up these really amazing women who are coming through um, and, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So we're really keen to get out there and, you know, show who we are and what we stand for. And as a, you know, as a lady myself, I'm really, really keen that everyone sees me and, you know, realises they can do they can do pretty much whatever they want. I'm, I'm the first lady chief executive of the CILT and I hope there are many more to come. Um, and really, I'm absolutely passionate that we make the Institute as welcoming and supportive for everybody. And by that way, you know, if we make it good for women, we'll make it good for anybody. So, yeah, it's something I'm very, very keen about. And I would encourage anybody to come along to our Women in Logistics group or even just to join the forum online just to see what we're about. You know, I love that comment. If we can make it good for women, we can make it good for everybody. I think that's brilliant. It is about that level playing field so that everybody can be part of something. Yeah, no, absolutely. Looking back at your 18-year-old self, what one thing would you like to say to her? Well, I would like to have said you should have bought Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> but but failing, I, I was thinking about this question, and, and I think something I've only learned probably relatively recently um, is to be confident to bring your authentic self to work. Um, I do remember when I was in my late 20s and had a child, uh, you know, relatively young baby, um, I didn't tell my, my the company I went to work for that I had a child because I thought in some ways they, they'd feel less of me or wouldn't trust me or wouldn't give me a job. And, and also I think... Um, I have some neurodiverse issues and to be honest about that and open about that and open about mental health is really hard. And I would say it's probably only something I've been comfortable talking about for the last few years. Um, and I thank a lot of younger people really for that who've been, you know, they're just on social media, they're talking about their own personal challenges. Um, and it's taken a lot for me in my generation to come out and sort of say things, you know, I have mental health problems. It's OK. It's OK not to be OK. Mm. Um, and that's something I'm really grateful to the younger generations for, because I think it's something our generation doesn't do well. So to my 18 year old self, I would definitely say just be confident in being your authentic self at work. And yeah, just just do it. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. It's been brilliant talking to you today. Thank you for the insight into the CILT. Um, and for those listening, um, if you'd like more information, please visit drivingforbetterbusiness.com. We'll have all the links uh, from today's interview um, and join us for the next podcast. Thank you, Sharon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
to you by driving for better business.